Welcome, Tales of Glory listeners. I am your host, Reverend Michael Norton, and I'd like to welcome you back to another edition of Tales of Glory. Today, we're resuming back to my book, The Advanced Field Guide to Spiritual Warfare. We're going to take a look at Chapter 5, The Spiritual Authority of Jesus Christ. And this, this, this particular podcast today should be pretty interesting. So yeah, uh, glad to have you guys back on board. It seemed like it took a long time for us to get here, huh? A lot of things going on in my life right now, and I kept trying to keep this stuff balanced and keep you guys going and not just cast it to the side. Tales of Glory, we had a couple of things going on. We have the St. Teresa of Avila. I think we're going to be hitting Fifth Mansions Chapter 4 next. And of course, here we're going through the Field Guide to Advanced Spiritual Warfare, which is my book. I printed back in 2017, I believe. And also, I'm doing... The supernatural through his word, right? It's a it takes a look at the we're going through the Bible verse by verse and looking at the supernatural and God in it. And it's gonna be some pretty amazing stuff there. Because we're gonna be looking at it through the eyes and perspective of a second temple Jewish, you know, believer. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that differs from what we have taught in the seminary. I want to look at it through the eyes of what they taught. So we're digging some really cool stuff. And of course, um, all this stuff applies to each other. So some of that continuity from there, we're going to be going through, I think the next episode I'm working on here is Genesis 6, right? If you guys know where I'm going with that one. We did Genesis 1 through 5 already. Now we're doing Genesis 6. The sons of broke from their heavenly realms and made it with the daughters of men. And also we're talking about knowing the flood. So a lot of good stuff. In fact, when I get that one produced, it's going to have a lot of information that's going to provide some background to this episode, and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but that happens sometimes. So anyhow, I'm kind of glad I started the supernatural through his word. That's going to be fi- provide a lot of good information that we're discussing here without me having to reiterate myself. Back to these episodes. Anyhow, the supernatural through his word can be found on m16ministries.blogspot.com. And these episodes of Tales of Glory are hosted on a field guide to spiritual warfare.blogspot.com. So very cool. Glad to have you guys back. It's good to be back, right? Yeah, I got a lot of stuff going on, man. Did a lot of stuff going on this summer. Very busy, busy, busy. So what do we got here, Mike? Fire up them PowerPoints. Bam. So again, if you're watching on YouTube, you'll have the PowerPoints um, in front of you. If you're listening on Spotify or you know, listening on uh, Apple iTunes or something like that, pod- Apple Podcasts, you probably won't have the slides in front of you, but I'll just re- read them out verbatim when I do it. But if it helps have see the slides in front of you, go over to my YouTube channel under Michael Norton. And it'll be under the title, same title as you find on Spotify. So, in Tales of Glory, we are resuming Field Guide to Advanced Spiritual Warfare. And that is the book on deliverance, exorcism, and healing the effects of ritual abuse. Again, I'm your host, Reverend Michael Norton. I have my own ministry, M16 Ministries, 501c3, that was started back in 2007. I worked on the streets of San Francisco in some of the most dangerous neighborhoods at nighttime on Friday nights. It was called Night Strike Homeless Ministry. That ran from 2006 to 2016, where God had me shut it down and had me move somewhere else to kind of disseminate and work with some of the knowledge I gained on the streets about the occult. So very exciting times. What else we have in the checkpoints here? Spiritual warfare ministry, deliverance, exorcism, and ritual abuse. That's from 2006 to present. And we're going to discuss, that's where I get a lot of my information from these books. I actually work 
as a Christian counselor and I work with survivors of ritual abuse and I work with people who need exorcisms. And I just, it's kind of interesting, you know, broad <laughs> coverage. Uh, people are demonized, people who think they're demonized, um, people have dissociations, um, people are dissociated on purpose for the sake of ritual abuse. And I work with, through marriage counseling with normal people, I work with who are whole, and I work with people who are dissociated. You know, I have the full gambit here. So I'm kind of presenting you the buffet of stuff I've seen and how I interpret stuff and how churches do it right and do it wrong. You'll see me present a lot of corrections along the way. So uh, down there, it was, uh, oh, I did Miracles and Warfare, Deliverance and Healing Ministry from 2010 to 2013 on Sunday nights. One Sunday night a month, we did Deliverance and Healing, Inner Healing and Warfare Ministry at my old church. That was pretty powerful. Good stuff. I'm also a pastor at a current church. It's called Remnant Church, where we work with um, Survivors of severe drama, we're kind of also putting that now too to be a, a regular church with other people involved because we find people are healing from church stuff from all different avenues, not just uh, ritual abuse stuff. So we kind of opened our doors a little bit to let people in. And we're getting excited about re resume here uh, since the pandemic shut us down. I am an author to the Field Guide to Spiritual Warfare and a Field Guide to Advanced Spiritual Warfare, the latter books that we're talking about. I'm a ministry in spiritual warfare. I've been to Ethiopia, Guyana, Vietnam, Cambodia, South America, and of course, my backyard, San Francisco. So again, this is Reverend Michael Norton. I'm the missionary with the microphone, and I'm reaching out to you guys for equipping. And today we're going to go cover some advanced spiritual warfare stuff. If you already bought the book, I'm going to try to make it more interesting, but I'll cover that here in a second, okay? Ah, there's the book. There's that cover. Look at that. Advanced Spiritual Warfare, man. That's the book we're covering today. Reverend Michael J. Norton. That'd be me. Okay, A Field Guide to Advanced Spiritual Warfare. This is um, kind of the contents of the book. We've already covered Introduction and Deliverance Ministry. You can go look those up in previous episodes. We worked on Sin in the Soul. We did Spiritual Alignment, Salvation in the Soul. We worked on Forgiveness. And today's milestone, we are at Spiritual Authority in Jesus Christ. This is going to be some good stuff here today. You'll like it. Hopefully it'll be stuff you never heard before and stuff you probably heard before, but I'm going to try to sweeten the deal here. Stay tuned. Field Guide Spiritual Warfare. Advanced Spiritual Warfare. This is Chapter 5 we're working on today. Spiritual Authority in Christ. So what are we doing here? Let's do a little intro. So this is my opportunity to bring you up to speed where I'm at in this topic since I wrote the Advanced Field Guide Spiritual Warfare in 2017. We're always growing this ministry and always encountering darker battles, right? So I personally can't rehash what I did in the book because I wrote in 2017. I've grown since then. So you guys are going to get a little more information standing on top of what I wrote in 2017. Yeah, just to rehash this stuff would be pointless and it would bore, bore me to death. I couldn't, I couldn't just do this. I might just sit and read, the, read from the book, right? It would be too boring for me. So this is actually my chance to correct and append my notes to the book. So you guys get the book and get to see what we're doing since then and what I want corrected since then. And there's been a lot of stuff. I mean, if you're not changing in this ministry, you're not really doing it, or you're off doing something you think you know what you're doing, which is just as bad. But if you're really on these front lines and you're you're taking hills and battles, you're constantly getting updated on what works and what doesn't work. And this is not methodology. You're just learning more as a Holy Spirit trains you. I'm talking about Holy Spirit training. I'm not talking about... Um, being trained through a rooting demons book, which is not a good idea. 
So the major difference between what I'm doing now and when I wrote the book in 2017 is I am focusing on the Bible as a whole complete source of material, right? This is far more continuity from Genesis to Revelation from the Old Testament than what is preached at the pulpit. What do I mean by that? We're looking at the through the eyes of um, a Second Temple Hebrew. They had kind of a twist on things. If you look at it through their eyes, you kind of see how their 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 theology and their demonology doesn't line up with what we present today. I think we kind of modified it through, through the um, 70s, 80s, and 90s and early 2000s based on the works of uh, you know like Peter Wagner and things like that, his, his institute and a couple of the guys out there. Um, we've had this thing like you bind the demon of this, bind the demon of that. We've had pigs in the parlor and all this stuff. And I've talked about that too. And it was good for when it started, but it's not really have any total foundation, strong foundation of what's biblical through the Old Testament through the New Testament. And we're going to talk about this. And there may be some things that are kind of like, what? What are you talking about, Mike? Everything I present here has been researched and backed up by scholars who know ancient Hebrew. I quote a lot Dr. Michael Heiser, because I know when he researches his stuff, he goes through a lot of biblical texts too. And also he has his um, information double-checked by other PhDs, so he's not just spouting something out there like, this is the new thing to embrace. I'm not like that. In fact, some of the I'm presenting here today, I had a hard time following it. You know, I tell you, my brain is wired for computational physics. That's why I got my degree in, in, in college way back when. And the stuff I'm arriving at now took me a long path to find all the data, all the information, but the data had to connect to make sense. Sometimes when we preach something in the pulpit, we heard somebody else say something or somebody popular said something and we reiterate it without having any data points to it. And this is bad. You all know I've kind of picked on one charismatic um, pastor who always says, you can go sharpen your, your irons in the second heaven. That's that's another thing of bad ideas that doesn't have any data points. And when you do it, people get hurt. So again, um, as we go through this stuff, I'm presenting somewhat new information on top of my old information just to build you guys up. It may or may not change your minds. That's okay. But I'm just getting out there just for you guys can think about it, let the gears turn on it and think what you see about it. But as far as the research is concerned, I think we're pretty much on the right path here. Should be interesting. So here we go. So we're in the authority of Jesus Christ, right? So the definition of authority states that a person or organization has control of an environment. Authority is usually associated with a governing body or ruler. Spiritual authority is granted by a governing ruler, for instance, the kingdom of God. God sits on a throne in his mountain, in his heavenly kingdom, and all of creation are his subjects. All of his creation are creating um, Divine spiritual beings, which we more commonly or misaccurately label as angels, and also down to demonic beings and down to um, us, God's creation, man and woman, creatures, animals, things that creep and crawl, things that fish, that swim, that fly, right? All the things that creepy, creep and crawl and swim. That's what God has authority over everything. In order to validate Jesus' authority, we have to go back and recognize him as the creator, right? So Jesus is God and the creator. We know from John 1 that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. 
for the longest time, I had a hard time unpacking why it was. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What, what's it saying here? Um, Apostle John's basically reiterating the story of creation from Genesis 1, and he's putting it in a manner that the Second Temple Hebrews would have caught right away, right? In the beginning was. So what happened at the event of the beginning? Before there was nothing, before there was anything, in the beginning was. They're saying before anything happened, before anything was created, the word existed, right? There's a pre-existence. There's, there's no time created it, no timeline, but before that, in, e in eternality, in the everlasting, was the word, was God. And the word was with God, right? So we frame this as being as Jesus, right? So the word was God and the word was with God. Jesus, in the beginning, before anything happened, was Jesus, and Jesus was with God. So Jesus is the creator. Right, we kind of got to hop through some hoops here to unpack that. Does that make sense? If we're starting anything in spiritual authority, Jesus must have preeminence. He must be above all, above everything. And that's what we're stating here. If he's a creator, he's above everything. Nothing was created you know, beyond him. Nothing created him. He was. So Jesus has preeminence over all creation. This is important, especially in spiritual authority and over demonic and satanic angels. Jesus has to have preeminence over everything. So Jesus created all things, including the highest ranking, both good and rebelling high-level divine spiritual beings. Whether those, we refer to them sometimes in my book as satanic angels. But I think as something we're rehashing here is we're looking at divine spiritual beings, right? And I'll... I'll unpack why that is. This, using the term angels is not actually correct. An angel is a messenger. So we can't call all of God's spiritual beings angels because that's not correct. So Jesus has authority over all things, both spiritual and creatures. Right? He created everything. So he has authority over everything. So no heresy yet here, right? You guys are with me? No, no need to hang Mike, burn up the stake, come after him with the, the torches and pitchforks to his house? Crystal clear or muddy, right? Yeah, crystal clear. So let's look at some scripture. The preeminence of Christ in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let's look at this one, because this is the one the Jehovah Witnesses always throw at us, right? Colossians 1.15. The firstborn of all creation. That's what they always throw at us. That's a title. That's not saying, hey, he was first, right? Oh, I thought Adam was the firstborn. Well, Adam wasn't even born, right? Adam was created. Possibly it was either Seth or somebody. I don't know. We don't know. It's first created. There's, there's people there. We know that. But the firstborn is a title like my oldest son or my firstborn son or my he who gets my inheritance of the kingdom, right? That's what that is, a title. It's not saying, oh, he was firstborn of all creation. See, Mike, there it is. No, that's a title. To God, he is God's firstborn son. Make sense? Verse 16, for him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
we're seeing again thrones, dominions, or rulers, and authorities. Where did we see this before? We saw the listing of the wicked ones in Ephesians 6.10. Who's above these guys? Who's above the super wicked guys? And why we have to wear spiritual armor? Jesus is above them all. Jesus can Thanos snap them out of existence if he wanted to. 17, verse 17. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the creator, and he is the glue. Nothing can exist without him, right? Does that sound pretty high up in the food chain? He's the image of the invisible God. Remember, we're going to talk about images here in a second, but he is the perfect image of the invisible God. Remember? Genesis 1.26, I think we're going to get to later here too. Let us create them in our image, right? So we'll talk about that. But the only perfect image of God is Jesus Christ because they are one and the same, right? They are the perfect image of everything else that was imaged from them. Verse 18, And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Wow. All right. Not when he rose, right? He, 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 didn't, he wasn't born from some other person. Like Mary had another baby right after he was. That's not how he was resurrected. He went and showed everybody the, the, you know, like as Paul said, he showed everybody the nail holes in his hands. So the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. There it is. It's called out. Preeminent means he's above all. Verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. God is above all things. This is something when I teach on my blog site in the older days, it used to just tick off the witches and the voodoo practitioners, especially the voodoo practitioners. I think the witches were sometimes more tolerant. The voodoo practitioners just went ballistic. God's not above our gods, you know, the lowercase gods being theirs. And man, I had some heavy warfare. They made me sick. They put me in the hospital. I'd never been in the hospital in my life before until voodoo hit me. Um, but God got me out in two days and it freaked out the doctors when it happened, right? I wasn't supposed to walk out of there, especially not as quickly as I did. That's kind of some miraculous stuff there. This is not a challenge to anybody gets mad at me, right? It's not a challenge. I'm saying it is the truth. God is above all things, including these little... Uh, elemental spirits and above all these little nasty little voodoo spirits. I'm sorry. It is what it is. That's the truth. God created those spirits where they fell. He is above them all. And that's why when some of these voodoo people get mad at me, they can't understand why I've had a successful battle against voodoo in warfare. Well, our God's bigger and we've seen it take out pastors and priests. Yeah, you probably did, because we'll talk about that wire too, because they weren't standing in their true authority. And that's something hard to learn here. But yeah, so Colossians 1, 15 through 20, we see it right there, right? God is preeminent. God's above all. God created everything, and God can Thanos snap everything out of existence. And back again, back and forth, back and forth. He's really having a bad day. He could snap us back and forth through existence, right? He won't do that. I just want to make a point that that's what he's capable of, and that's what these evil, wicked spirits are not capable of. So we've seen in the Bible, and we've seen... Jesus' authority and deliverance and healing, right? We've seen this. He, everywhere he went, he healed and he casted out demons. Everywhere he spoke. So I want to pick on one particular case here. Jesus cast out a demon while not even being in the presence of it in Mark 7, 24. This is important. 
right? Still in Deliverance Ministries. Well, come here, we'll lay hands on a person, cast out the demon. That's great and all. It's a good way to do it. But Jesus, <laughs> in his authority, I call it doing it Wi-Fi, right? Here we go. Let's take a look at this. Mark 7, 24. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he could not be hidden. Verse 25. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Verse 26. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast a demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Right? I call that one to go on Wi-Fi, right? He, Jesus had such authority, didn't he have to be in the same town? Probably not be on the same side of the planet to do it. But he did it through his authority and cast the demon out of lady's daughter. Cool stuff there, right? That's what we're looking at. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Good stuff there. That's Jesus' authority. How about Jesus heals a centurion's servant by faith? This is another one. Matthew 8, 5-13. When he had entered a Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. But only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, and the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you believed. And the servant was healed that very day and very moment. That's Matthew 8, 5 through 13. Now, Jesus creates man as an imager. We talked about this earlier, right? That Jesus was the image of God, right? So let's see what this is about imagers and how it plays in this. So God is a God of love, and he creates us so he could love us. When God created man, a spiritual being and body and flesh, he wanted to interact with man. He wanted man as his co-creator, to be his family, and for us to co-counsel with him and his angels, or his divine spiritual beings we're using now, his vision of Eden, God's Edenic vision. That's what he wanted with us, man and woman. So God created us in his image so we could co-rule his creation of the earth with him. God gave us dominion, which is the power to rule. There's our spiritual authority, right? Through him, we receive our authority. We were created to have authority over all the earth. We were to give names to the creatures in his creation. All right, we're naming creatures now. 
We have some sort of high up authority. We're allowed to name things that God created. So that brings us to Genesis 1.26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let us make man in our image. What's he talking about? Who's let us? I covered this in the supernatural through his word in the first episode about Genesis 1. I think I covered Genesis 1 through 3 in that episode. Many pastors try to make us be the Trinity. It is not the Trinity. Well, who's he talking to then? The angels or divine spiritual beings were present when God created man. So this is his heavenly counsel with him, right? God's doing the creation, but he's telling his counsel, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So now we're being imaged as spiritual beings, right? That's where our spiritual part comes in of us spiritual beings in flesh. That's a piece of it. So we're going to be imaged as spiritual beings. So other animals don't have it. Dogs don't have it, sadly. Um, you know, I love dogs. They don't have it. Whales don't have it. Chimpanzees don't have it. Super smart gorillas don't have it. It's just God imaged us, right? We are imagers of God. We're capable of doing things God's doing, but not at the level God does it. We do it in his image. We can create stuff, which isn't like out of nothing like God can, and we can have dominion over the birds and over the demonic spirits and stuff. That's, that's, a, that's the image of God in us. So notes on imagers. I, I mentioned earlier the us in Genesis 1.26 are God's heavenly council members of divine spiritual beings. I think if you look at Job 38, he'll, he um, the author Job tells us that when God's talking to Job, he mentioned his angels were present during creation, right? So divine council. I know Michael Heiser has a lot of books on this one. I suggest you start reading. It'll probably take you a few months to go through all the books. I highlight the cred on my books. Get them hard copy if you get them. Get the hard copy versions. You're going to need them, the references. So spiritual beings were created to have free will, right? You and I have free will. Imagers are created by God to be lesser than him and therefore corruptible and imperfect, right? If we have free will, we're capable of making good and bad decisions, right? Good or evil. We're not perfect like God. He created us imperfect, and we have a free will to make our own decisions. Okay, divine spiritual beings, his servants are created and perfect. This one's talking about how the imagers aren't perfect. So Job 14, 17 through 18. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even his servants he puts no trust, and his angel he charges with error. Right? So even the angels are not perfect. Good stuff. That's what we're establishing. Jesus, the image of God, perfect, right? He is God. Angels are a lesser image of God, and I, th and I think we're lesser than angels, right? So it's just, it's how it works. So God knows that none of his imagers, divine or human, can be completely trusted, right? We have free will. We can make stupid decisions. 
without genuine free will, imagers cannot truly represent God, right? This came out in um, Dr. Michael Heiser's The Unseen Realm, page 58. Does that make sense? We wouldn't be imaged like God if we didn't have our own free will. Why do bad things happen? Because people are allowed to make bad, stupid decisions that hurt others. It's part of the free will. It's part of imaging. A normal whole person would not decide to go out and injure or harm or abuse another person, right? But there's some people that are, are damaged and they can use their free will to damage others. Jesus created all spiritual beings and they are all created lesser than him. God's perfection, power, reasoning, and authority are absolute over all his creation, both in the seen and unseen realms, period. Jesus has absolute power over the realms, right? Spiritual and non-spiritual. We're in a physical realm. We're non-spiritual. So we're in the seen realm, and the spiritual is the unseen realm. Jesus has absolute authority over both. He created them. They're his. They belong to him. They're his. Okay, let's move along to the topic of heavenly dominion under spiritual authority. Again, God is a God of love. He always intended to have a spiritual family to experience and co-rule his supernatural realm with. God created divine spiritual beings, which the modern Western church is incorrectly labeled as angels. We mentioned that, right? Okay, let's see why. The term angel is a description of the activity of divine spiritual being when it acts as a messenger of God. The correct term for the Second Temple Jewish community is divine spiritual beings, the Elohims, right? You go look at translations, there's Elohim is a God, Yahweh. Little Elohims are these divine spiritual beings, they're angels, sons of God, we've heard called do. God created divine spiritual beings to be in his heavenly family and co rule and co counsel with him in his heavenly abode. The Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament, have scripture that illuminates this concept. So we're not interjecting anything. We're not rewriting the Bible. We're not doing a passion interpretation with divine angels. We're not doing that. We're not doing that mucky muck. This is straight up in the ESV. It's straight up in all Bibles. It's straight up in the Septuagint. And the Septuagint is what, Mike? That is the Bible that was in the hands of Paul, of Peter, the author of Jude, of Matthew, of Luke, right? That's the Bible they had. This stuff was in it. And this stuff is carried on now. It's just we interpret it differently and we shouldn't. And we're going to use our data we have to start connecting data points so we move along through some of this stuff. Told you, told you it'd be interesting, right? I wasn't going to rehash the, the book. I'm going to kind of rehash the book as an outline, but I'm going to show you guys where we're at now and what we're looking at. Things are different. There are not choirs of angels as Catholic tradition has taught us. There are divine spiritual beings who rebelled, commonly referred to as fallen satanic angels in our church, against God that are identified in Paul's epistles, the Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against heavenly rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in these heavenly places. That is what we're looking at. That's what we're up against. This area, too, may also be commonly referred to as a second heaven where the evil, wicked rulers reside. So keep that in mind as we, we, we go through this stuff, all right? But then again, what do we know? So we have 
against the heavenly rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of his darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That sounds scary. Who's above them all? Who is above all of them? Who is above all of them? Jesus. Jesus can fire them all in a second. You're fired, right? Kick him out. Okay, that was a heavenly authority. Let's look at, does man have authority in the heavenly realms? Most of you who took my classes or listened to the podcast, you know what the answer is. No. I know there's still some popular teachers out there. I mentioned it earlier and opened up that you can sharpen your iron to second heaven against heavenly spirits. That is so dangerous. So, so dangerous. Yeah, it just... It's amazing that people come up with things, sell a book or do get, get popular, right? They'll, you know, false teachers. So here, man's spiritual authority does not extend into the heavenly places. Only Jesus has full authority in the heavens and over his fallen angels, the wicked spiritual beings. Mankind was created in the middle of a heavenly conflict. And we'll look at more of this on our um, later chapter on authority in heavenly realms, but that's all I want to say about this right now. The answer is just a big no. Okay? But I do have a chapter on authority in the heavenly realms and what we do. But meanwhile, we're talking about the authority, spiritual authority of Jesus Christ. So let's move on. A divine spiritual being rebellion. Okay, that's our topic for this section. War is waging between two kingdoms, God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom of darkness. Satan's rank of divine spiritual beings attempted to overthrow God in rebellion and failed miserably. The consequences of the rebellion the satanic spiritual ranks are there to be forever separate from God with no possibility ever of redemption. Scripture tells us that at the end of this conflict, the fallen angels will be tossed in a lake of fire and consumed, right? Careful what you hear because there's stuff out there. People going, oh, the demons, if they apologize and they repent, they're not going to repent. And we'll talk about a little bit why later. They, they really can't. So this topic, Satan's stolen authority, the fall, and then some, right? What happens afterwards? When Adam and Eve fell to the original sin, the Garden of Eden, they became slaves through the sin, right? Their slave master was Satan. Every person ever born from Adam to the present day is born under the curse of original sin. Satan took authority over all the earth. It was stolen from Adam, right? So we'll look at this a little bit deeper here, um, how Jesus handled it with the, the temptation out in the wilderness. We have it both, I guess, Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Um, in my book, I, I cited Luke 4, uh, the temptation of Jesus, so we'll go through that one. When Jesus went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days, Satan offered the earthly authority back to Jesus, if Jesus would bow down to him, right? Pretty much sums up the crutch of the temptation in the, in the wilderness. Or was there more? When you think about Matthew 4 and Luke 4, um, some things immediately connect the dots in your mind. Jesus in the wilderness, right? Where have we seen this before? Jesus out in the wilderness, no food. Israel in the wilderness, right? Jesus was hungry. Israel was hungry in the desert, right? Again, we're going to look at this now through the glasses of a second temple Hebrew. When the second temple Hebrew believer read Jesus in the wilderness, they immediately were taken back to Exodus of the Israel in the wilderness, right? And oh, Jesus was hungry. Remember, oh yeah, Israel was hungry too, right? It's almost like a reenactment. But let's follow this. Curious stuff here about Luke 4 and Matthew 4. The reason behind this is no coincidence. 
Matthew wanted to show his readers that Jesus was superior to Moses and the Israelites in all ways from the book of Exodus. Jesus is retaking the test and passing it with flying colors. Right? He's taking the test the uh, people who were with Moses during the Exodus took, right? And they're all in uh, paradise now. So Jesus has to take all these tests and pass them with flying colors to be a man who did not sin, right? So let's look at some wording here. It's connecting data points again. Exodus, the son of man, who's that? We know from Exodus, it's a corporate body of Israel. God's son by adoption, right? We saw in Exodus, we saw it was the son of man, the corporate body of Israel. Now, Matthew wants to pull the reader in over here, the son of man, the supernatural embodiment of God's son. And this information I gleaned out of the Naked Bible podcast, episode 339, Exodus in the Gospel of Matthew. So again, let's unpack and connect the dots upon the theology of Second Temple Jews living during the time of Jesus. This paints a deeper picture of the temptation of Jesus by Satan that appears in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus. The eye-opener for this account comes from the perspective of the Second Temple Jew witnessing Jesus undo all the errors and temptations of Moses and the Israelites. The account maps consistently with Exodus, and this is what would have stood out for the Jews at the time of Christ. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, the temptation of Jesus, through how the Second Temple Jews believed it and how they mapped it back to Exodus. They just did, right? They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the Gospels. You know, we see some, oh, that's in the Gospels. Yeah, John said that, or, you know, that probably came out of Matthew. Well, these guys are familiar with the um, the Old Testament. So when they saw this stuff map over, like, oh my gosh, that's that was a telling of Moses and, and the Israelites, and they were starving in the desert, and they got mad at God, and you know, because they were hungry, right? They were hungry, man. But here, Jesus took the same test. He passed. Like the Israelites, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. In this test, Jesus is faithful to the Torah, where the Israelites and Moses failed. Okay, he did it. High five in Jesus, he did it. Pulled it off. So let's look at this. Let's look at Luke 4, chapter 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Were we seen 40 days before? We've seen it in Exodus. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, and these wrap back to Exodus 16 and Numbers 11. The Israelites were hungry and they were getting manna. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I give all this authority and glory, for all has been delivered to me, and it will be given to whom I will. Okay, so look at Genesis, right? Two possible places. Genesis 3 is when Adam and Eve um, were tempted and ate the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And we're also looking at Genesis 11, which, gosh, Mike, what's the Tower of Babel got to do with this? When man built was building a Tower of Babel, he had to be divided into nations, right? That was part of the judgment on him for doing this. And when the Tower of Babel was divided, God kept his portion and later called Abraham out of it, right? And start his portion. 
the Israelites, and the rest of them were divvied up into Gentiles under the Elohims, right? The other gods, right? And we'll see this here. That's kind of what's going on. So how did Satan get this? To you, I'll give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whom I will. So verse 6, possibly two different sources here. Genesis was Genesis 3 from Adam and Eve, and from Genesis 11, when God divided the kingdoms under the Elohims. And we'll touch upon this too. This should be a head spinner too, because we need this continuity pulled back in, because church doesn't teach about what happened in Genesis 11. And it's in Deuteronomy, it's in Psalms, and it's all throughout the gospel. Verse 7, if you then will worship me, it'll be all yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So what's happening here? This is a test of the Exodus Israelite idolatry, right? They went off, made the calf, all that good stuff, and they got in trouble. So Jesus is retaking the test. Passed it. Verse 9, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. Right? What's that coming from? That's come from Psalm 91. And verses 9 through 10, you know, throw yourself down from here. That's come from Deuteronomy 6.16, do not test your God. All right? So see where I'm mapping back the Old Testament back into this? A lot of stuff here. Psalm 91 was an interesting one. Verse 11. And on their hands they will bear, bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Again, Psalm 91. And verse 12. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that is Luke 4, 6 through 12. Some of those things kind of make sense now. Have you ever had it presented at church that was mapping back to Exodus? I never did. It was just like Jesus went out and did, you know, did the 40 days thing. I kind of caught the 40 days thing. Like, hey, wasn't that back in Exodus? But that's what Matthew wanted the, his um, readers to do. They were second temple Jews, and he wanted them to catch on to the, I guess we would call it Easter eggs nowadays in TV shows, the Exodus Easter eggs throughout the scripture. It's all throughout the gospel there. It's all throughout it. So in this context, it is safe to assume that everything Satan wanted to hand over to Jesus, he presumed he owned. Jesus set him straight on who really had the authority. What's interesting in this dialogue between the two is that Jesus didn't acknowledge that Satan never had the authority, right? Nor did Jesus answer Satan. Instead, he reminded and reprimanded Satan of his place in creation. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. A little correction going there of the Satan guy, huh? So again, how did Satan acquire the kingdoms? As I mentioned earlier, and we're going to cover a lot of this too as I covered the supernatural through his word when we're going through all of Genesis like this. God dispersed the kingdoms with Gentiles in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, right? And he divvied it up against the, the sons of God, the Elohims. And only one portion did God keep. He kept Israel, and God summoned his kingdom through Abraham during that. It was like right after, right? That was like next event after Genesis 11, I believe. They started. God summoned the pagan. He wasn't even a believer yet. He summoned the pagan Abraham. So let's look at the Tower of Babel incident. 
Genesis 11, 8 through 9. So the Lord dispersed them from over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. So God dispersed them. Right? And who did he put over them? And then we know from Deuteronomy 32, 9, um, angels, sons of God were put over them. And some of these guys turned out to be evil. Like we know um, the prince of Persia with Daniel, right? That's an evil Elohim that was put over Persia. That's what happened to those guys. The Babylonians, they were dispersed under that prince of Persia. Verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from over there in the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Genesis 11, 8 through 9. Okay, here we go. So I want to um, have you guys catch it. So God dispersed the kingdoms, right? He dispersed uh, the nations, right? At Tower of Babel, Genesis, Genesis, verse 11, uh, Genesis chapter 11. So the Tower of Babel incident, God divided kingdoms amongst the sons of God. Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, the Elohims. Catch that in verse 8. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, and when he divided mankind, again that happened at Tower of Babel, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. Verse 9, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob allotted his heritage. So what happened there? The Lord's portion, that's when he called out Abram. The kingdoms were divided amongst the sons of God, the Elohims, right? Divine spiritual beings. Yahweh took his portion, Israel, whom he would call out through the pagan Abram. And the sons of God, both good and wicked, were given kingdoms over the Gentiles. This We see these... Um, Wicked kingdoms of the Gentiles in Ephesians 6.10 and Luke 4 through 4, 5, right? Where Satan goes, I have the kingdoms. Jesus is the God most high. Jesus is Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who divided the kingdoms. Yahweh is the one who assigned the Elohims over the over the nations, right? So Satan's a wicked spiritual being, and he's an imager, right? He's a lesser image of Jesus. That is a spiritual creature of the Creator, right? So Jesus created Satan. Jesus created all those little um, Elohims, the spiritual beings that disperse the rest of the Gentiles under. Jesus is in control. Jesus can bring it all back at the snap, right? Snap of his fingers, he can bring it all back. He's in charge. The absolute authority right now is going to Jesus. Satan has minor authority, but usually it's through deception and, I don't know, backroom poker deals or, you know, that sort of stuff. Jesus is the God most high. And Satan is a wicked spiritual being, imager, that is a spiritual being, the creator. So from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 accounts, Jesus is the second Moses. That's what Matthew wanted to see. The first Moses, like the first Adam, was far from perfect, messed up. But Jesus being the second Adam, the second Moses, the perfection. So second Adam and second Moses are themes in second temple Jewish theology. I think we get the second Adam view through Paul's epistles and stuff. 
but we're rarely taught in the pulpit that Jesus was always presented as the second Moses, right? And the Jews who knew the coming of the Christ knew that would be one of his representations. It just played out there. And there's so many Exodus Easter eggs through Matthew, it's pathetic. Jesus restores man's authority in creation. Well, how do you do that? Paul's epistle to the Romans explains that God had a plan for redemption for Adam and Eve and for you and I. Jesus Christ would come to our world incarnate. He would be exposed to the same fallen world as you and me. Only you would have a sinless, holy life. Jesus would become the perfect sacrifice and die in our place and for our sin on the cross. Jesus would become the second Adam. And as we know now, he was the second Moses, right? Let's look at Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many were made righteous again. Okay? Yeah, powerful stuff there. This is what's going on with Jesus. Jesus can just do what he's got to do and wipe it out. He was the plan. He was the plan to bring back this, this creation that, that it was um, kind of chaotic now, right? Things were out of control. He was going to bring it back into order. That's what Jesus is doing here, the Messiah. According to Romans 5, by the law of God, the first Adam sinned and left every man born in the state of original sin. The second Adam, Jesus, was allowed to live Adam's life in substitution and undo the transgression. This imputing of sin is why Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. All right? Remember we talked about imputing sin. Um, think back during Sin in the Soul. Go back look at that chapter. I think that's where it's at. Um, of Tales of Glory on a field guide to advanced spiritual warfare. That covers that part for you not getting what that is. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is the first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust, and the second man is from heaven. Right? We know that from the supernatural, through his word, that... God created the first Adam through dust, and the Holy Spirit breathed life or spirit into the Adam and, and brought him to life. Verse 48, As was the man of dust, so also are those who are the dust and is the man of the heaven. So also are those who are of heaven. Just as we born the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Wow, okay. See the imaging going on there? So we bear the image of Adam in his fallenness, but we also bear the image of Jesus Christ. Authority revoked from Satan. All right, we're getting the good stuff now. Any of this stuff too crazy yet? Mike, you're a heretic. Stop talking. We can't listen anymore. Did it send the people the pitchforks and the, the torches to my house? I don't know. Let's take a look. When Jesus was crucified, he died and descended into Hades the netherworld of death. Before the work on the cross, the righteous did not go to heaven. They were separated from God. Everyone who ever died from Adam up till Jesus on the cross all went to Hades. Makes sense, right? Remember we know from, uh, was it Luke 10? Uh, Lazarus and the rich man. That's where we got a lot of this information from. Jesus gives info on it. 
In Hades, the righteous lived in paradise of Abraham's bosom, and the unrighteous lived in a burning chamber called hell. We know from scripture that paradise and hell inside Hades were separated by a giant chasm. There it is, Luke 16. I said, go to Luke 10. Nope, shame on me. That was the wrong one. Luke 16, verses 22 through 24. Scriptures tell us that Jesus made proclamations to the imprisoned spirits in Hades. For Christ also died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, what made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Okay, something here with going back through the um, the lens of the Second Temple Jewish people. When they see this sign, made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, it may be, and it's leaning a lot towards it through research, that they're talking about the spirits from Genesis 6, the divine spiritual beings who broke from their ranks and created um, and procreated with earthly women. And so God went to speak to them. I think it wasn't that he was preaching to them. He made a proclamation. He goes, I've just undone what you guys did. And that's what that's about. And in the, looking at some of the Dead Sea Scroll texts and the Septuagint, stuff like that, it's starting to point to that's what it was. It was very confusing. A lot of times we're taught in church that God went and spoke to the saints, or, you know, the, the holy ones down there in paradise. I don't think this what this was anymore. We'll start looking at the data points. It's pushing more towards he made a proclamation to the spirits in the abyss, right? The ones who were chained both in First um, Peter 3 and the ones were in Jude 8 through 10. I think that's where it's at. That's who he's talking to. He told me, hey, you know what? I just undid what you, the mess you guys made, right? The depravity and that, the fallenness you guys brought, I just, I just cleaned it up. That's what we're talking about here. The spirits who are bound in prison are those who died before us. Jesus was crucified. See, that's what I'm correcting myself on right there. I don't believe this is the case. I believe now it's Jesus based on the, what the Second Temple Hebrews believed, Second Temple Jews, that Jesus went and preached to the prisoners who were of Genesis 6, the Elohims who broke from rank and broke from their dominion and procreated with women on earth. Anyhow, God's righteous souls like Abraham, Moses, Joshua, the thief on the cross who died on, next to Jesus, even in death, these souls were separated from God. The scriptures prophetic fulfillment of a, um, Isaiah 61.1. Okay. Yeah, minor changes in nomenclature. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That's what he did. So again, the prison was paradise, Abraham's bosom in Hades. When Jesus ascended, he brought the righteous captives out of the prison of Hades and into the new location of paradise in heaven. I may have some problems with this one too. Um, after doing research, it's just nomenclature, but that's the way the church kind of looks at it right now. So let's leave it alone. And when I'm able to expand upon it on a larger topic, so I could totally rabbit trail here. Yeah. Let's, we'll, we'll leave that right there. We'll come back to this one. So Ephesians 4, 9 through 10. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also had descended into the lower regions of the earth. 10, verse 10. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So Jesus descended and he ascended. Again, I have some information on this one. I don't want to get too squirrely on you guys with this. But we'll leave it intact the way it is here. But that's pretty close to it. But there might have been a minor twist to this. Yeah, don't you love doing this research? Um, I don't have it in front of me, so I'm not going to comment on it. It's okay to leave it the way it is, because that's the way a lot of churches say, he who ascended, descended on must also ascend. And there's just there's just more going on here, and I need to unpack this. Now, probably have to dedicate either a fireside chat or something to these, these verses, because I haven't packed a lot of stuff out of Ephesians 1 now, Ephesians 1 through 6, um, that just... It was stuff was preached in church to make it to fit, but it didn't fit because there was other texts that linked this. I've kind of found them. I don't have the top of my head, but keep in mind too that's 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 where we're at with some of this stuff. That's why things are slightly changing. Not trying to deceive anybody. Um, it's all backed up by um, peer reviews and and papers and all sorts of stuff. See, I'm reading the stuff you guys don't want to read. I'm reading the hardcore stuff. So, okay, this part's true though. The souls were brought to heaven to live out eternity in the presence of God. Jesus completed his primary objective to remove the sins of man that separated him from everlasting life with Jesus Christ. Jesus had conquered sin and death, right? That part's 100% true. We know that, right? Jesus died and rose again three, three days and went to the right-hand side of the Father, right? That part's true. We know this. That's what this is all about. What we're doing here, it seems kind of wonky, is we're injecting back in what happened at Genesis 6. Because we've glazed over it and a supernatural event there happened that parallels. And we're going to start looking at demonic beings and what where did they come from, things like that. And it's, it's a slight change here. I'm still on the fence in some of this stuff. What I'm going to provide you with is some of the research we have out now, what, what, what it is and what's going on from the Second Temple perspective, because we differ. And what I want to do is I want to hook back up to what the Second Temple Jews believe because it's more accurate than we have what we did. We pontificated too much off the ranch. That's what happened. Revelation 118. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and Hades. So who's in charge of death? Jesus is. He holds the keys. So we're getting that now, right? Um, Jesus is over everything. He's over death. He's over Hades. He's over the wicked angels. He's over the good angels. He is the top of the food chain. He's the apex Holy Spirit guy, right? That's him. He's at the top. Jesus. Jesus is at the top. The keeper of the keys of Hades was Satan. Without the covering of the blood of sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the soul is a prisoner to Hades, right? They had to have, we had to have the blood. We had to have the blood of Christ to move us from out of Hades into um, paradise and heaven. When Jesus conquered death on the cross, he also took away Satan's presumed authority over creation. I call it presumed authority because Jesus never gave him the authority, right? I think he just assumed he had it. and he, It's like assuming he had the right lottery ticket. Remember, I got it, I got it, I got it. And everybody believed him. It's kind of how to do it, right? I'm going to cash this in someday. I, I got the right lottery ticket. This guy goes, I have the authority, I have the authority, look, look, be, and everybody just believed it. But who gave authority? Who who dispersed the nations? It was Yahweh. It was Jesus. So who can call them all back? Yahweh, Jesus, not, not Satan. Satan can do either one. Authority restored. 
Through this work on the cross, Jesus redeemed us. We were no longer separated from God. The veil was torn, and our authority and dominion over the earth was restored. When Jesus was resurrected, he spoke with the disciples. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To Jesus, to me, has been given to him. So who's above it all? All authority is on Jesus. Who's above all every satanic angel? Jesus, right? Everything. It's Jesus. Who's above all creation? Jesus. Who commands every molecule? Who commands every electron, every neutron? Jesus. That's why we have some spiritual authority over spiritual beings as long as we use it wisely and we don't use it out of context or step out of our covering or dominion. So Jesus never lost his authority. Satan spoke to Jesus with pride and audacity. We see that in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Satan never really had the authority over the earth. Jesus came to legally seize back the first Adam's dominion and undo the spiritual separation between God and man. Note here, keep in the back of your mind to the restoration of sin of the watchers and the dividing of kingdoms back in Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel. Jesus brings mankind closer to restoring his Edenic dream. We're not there yet, but he's closer to it. That's the whole purpose here. He wants Jesus wants to restore Eden. That's what Revelation's about, right? We have the tree of life up there. God knows we have the tree of knowledge. I hope he destroyed that thing. I hope he burned it. Get that thing out of here. So let's discuss Jesus' victory at the cross. The miracle of the cross was a pivotal battle in the dark angelic realm's undoing. The cross had set a legal precedent in the spirit realm. The kingdom of the satanic angels had been defeated. And we'll see this too, that also the realm of wicked divine spiritual beings that were over regions were defeated. And many times we refer to those guys as satanic angels. I love this one. Verse 2, 14 through 15 in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Who did he triumph over? The wicked angels and regional spirits that presided over the regions given to them. They weren't supposed to mistreat the Gentiles. They did. They became wicked rulers. So he disarmed them at the cross. So my note down here, rulers and authorities, wicked Elohims that needed to be brought to judgment from the Genesis 11 incident, right? Tower of Babel. God divided the nations and some of those regional spirits became very wicked spirits to the people. And now they had to face judgment. The dark angelic realm's days are now numbered for their judgment. Jesus' work on the cross physically sets the dispensation in time for the start of the end times church. Right now, at this point in time, we're in the end times church. And if you can't notice from all the wackiness going on from 2020, I mean, <laughs> we've been in the end times church for 2000, but I think something's starting to really go on right now, guys. Yeah, you think, Mike? You think something's going on? Pretty much. I think the Antichrist is trying to set up his movement here, but let's just, it's interesting times to be in. We'll watch and see. Hebrews 10, 12 through 13. But, verse 12, 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool to his feet. Right? So a time's coming here. We meet a footstool, they're going to be under his feet. He's going to conquer them. He's already conquered them, but there's more stuff coming. He already paraded them around like, I defeated these guys. That's what the cross was. Right? The cross was when he prayed these guys around and humiliated them. They didn't get what was happening. They go, oh, we're going to kill Jesus. Ha, see ya. Good riddance. And all of a sudden it was wham. They didn't, they didn't see the resurrection coming. They didn't have that intelligence about Jesus. That was a quiet. That is the mystery Paul speaks of. These divine spiritual beings did not understand the mystery and what Jesus did by the resurrection. And that's what makes Jesus stand above the rest. These other little Elohims, right? Only one was resurrected, and only one's a true image of God. That is Jesus Christ. God clearly outlined the details of the fall of the Satanic Kingdom in the Apostle John's book of Revelation. God's word is complete and absolute. The enemy knows scripture, and he knows God is immutable in his word. What does that mean? God won't change. When Jesus returned to heaven, he didn't leave us powerless. Our authority over creation was restored. Restoration of our dominion has spiritual significance. The low-level, fallen satanic angels, which we call demons, are roaming the earth. We are cohabitants in a world that is a makeshift prison for these low-level, fallen angelic beings. We have terrestrial authority over these low-level demons. To exist in the world, we must walk in our spiritual authority and have a kingdom mindset. Before I go any further here, um, if I were to rewrite this book today, in 2021, I'm leaning more towards um, the work being done with the... Uh, ancient texts like Enoch. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, even want to touch Enoch before I thought, you know, everybody knew it was, but part of the problem was I'm a recovering charismatic, right? And all the charismatics were going, you got to read the book of Enoch. It's the, it should be the 67th book in the Bible. No, it shouldn't. It should not. But however, we must consider the book of Enoch to be valuable reading material that was trans-testamental, right? Between Micah to Matthew. It was written somewhere in that time period in the Second Temple, and it provided the oral tradition that was already present about the Watchers and what happened at Genesis 6. Now, when we read the New Testament, we see the word demons. Demons is just the Greek for spiritual beings. It could be anything. A ghost could be a demon, right? But what Jesus calls them is unclean spirits, and we don't see that terminology used in the Old Testament. We do see the word demon used, but they're regional spirits, right? Some of these wicked angels. I mean, wicked divine spiritual beings. And we cross the New Testament, we start seeing these low-level things. What are they? We'll unpack it more, and I'll try to unpack it more in the supernatural through his word when I do Genesis 6. And that's coming really soon, like in the next week or so. I, I'm already got the date on it, and I'm going to wrap it up here. I haven't recorded it yet. But we're going to talk about, and I, like I said, this took me a long time to wrap my mind around, and I had to go through, I had to see the text for myself to see it was accurate and true. But it looks like the demons are not fallen angels, but they're actually the spirits. They, call, they literally call them bastard spirits of the Nephilim, the giants like Goliath. When Goliath was slain and killed, his unclean spirit would have been a bastard spirit. And that's what are considered to be demons, right? Something was a, an abomination mating between a heavenly being and an earthly woman. And when the spirit that left when the creature died, or the abomination died, was 
these unclean spirits. Like they, they call them bastard spirits. And that's what I'm leaning towards what a demon is because it actually connects the dots more and more. There's actually a chasm in the New Testament. And it was okay for a while to assume their low-level demons were low-level satanic angels. But that may not be the case. And we'll just be open to that, all right? Um, so we I just read the texts. I have it here and keep in the back of your mind. They may have been the bastard spirits of the Nephilim. And I'm leaning that way now. It took me a long time to get to that. I used to poop with the thought, oh, come on, guys. But I'm seeing more and more of the old stuff. You know, it's getting bad, guys. It's getting so bad here. I mean, my researching, I'm actually uh, might be taking ancient Hebrew studies here just to, so I can read ancient Hebrew. It's I'm, I just want to search for the truth and stuff. I know Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior, and I love him so much, and he's valuable to me. But I'm just so enthralled by his story. I want to get the truth out of it, right? I'm not going to sway or backbend to every new idea that comes out. This stuff came from research. I know a lot of pastors are jumping on it right now without hearing the whole backstory or proving it to themselves, which is dangerous because it means they won't be able to ask the questions of what comes up, like how come they're not level angelic beings? How come they're bastard spirits or the unclean spirits? And you'll have to answer that. I can answer that question now, but I'm going to probably do it over in the supernatural through his word through Genesis 6, at least give an introductory to it and some parts in Enoch where it's at. But again, the book of Enoch is just a book that existed for the second temple people, and they're all aware of it. I, for the longest time, was able to push the book of Enoch out of my domain because I like Paul's writings. And I go, ha, Paul never quoted the book of Enoch. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, he did. Um, was it First Corinthians where a woman should cover her head because of the angels? Guess what he's quoting? It's about the watchers, the sin of the watchers, the, the, the angelic spirits that look down and watch. They don't want to, while they're in service, they don't want them to entice the watchers to come down and want, you know, and seduce them or have lust for them. So <laughs> I go, darn you, Paul. And once it was there, I started finding other places where Paul was where, where, well aware of the material in the book of Enoch. Again, it's not to be our 67th book in the Bible. It's not in there for a reason. However, it's okay to go and research the material that people had at the time that reinforced their faith, Right. Like a lot of people right now are reading, uh, was it the, the Passion Version of the Bible? I don't like that one whatsoever. Um, I have some problems with the person that read it in his theologies. And also, I don't like how he watered down and called it an interpretation. It wasn't an interpretation. It was not peer-reviewed. And it wasn't a direct translation. It was an, It's a Passion interpretation, not a Passion translation. Anyhow, that's the idea, right? A lot of people are, are looked into the... Passion translation of the Bible is kind of like what it was. So that maybe this thing like Enoch existed and some of it there may be the catalyst or be the vessel of what pieces we are missing from Genesis 6. But if you use the pieces out of Enoch, a lot of stuff for the Old Testament starts making sense. Okay? So um, I'm not going to load this all in here you now. I'm going to load it in places like we're doing here that, hey, heads up, heads up. Let's follow this thing. Keep an eye on it. Your authority from the cross. So why aren't Christians walking in their spiritual authority? The number one issue in my ministry encounters when a person's receiving deliverance prayer is that he or she is not standing in their own spiritual authority. This weak prayer posture leaves an open door for spirits to oppress them or the spirit manifestation to return. Spirits always check the locks when they're evicted. What am I saying there, Mike? I've been involved in some deliverances where 
people are afraid to stand up against these spiritual beings. They know they have them. They know the oppressions in them where they have spiritual attachments and they're new Christians. They believe Jesus will cast them out, but they walk in such fear. They allow these spirits to oppress them, right? And sometimes it's so much fear. It could take us a year or two years till these young Christians get up to speed. And we'll talk about this too. The other piece I call is missing trust in Jesus. They don't trust Jesus. So the spirit always checks the locks to see if they're evicted. And sometimes they can weasel their way back into things. Not as much as they could before. But, you know, now I hate saying that. Some people start emailing me. I have that problem. Well, my response to you is get it fixed. You're not spending enough time in the prayer room. Not spending enough time talking to Jesus. And he's going to use this as a trial to build you up. Either you're going to fall out altogether because your mind's going to give up. Or you're going to go deeper with him and go, wow, Jesus, we made out of this together. You got me through this. So that's part of him teaching you to walk in your spiritual authority. Christians should not have an issue with spiritual authority. It's usually their behaviors or something they let in fears that are problems. On occasion, yes, we got to, but not on the level I've seen with the deliverance ministries. You shouldn't be filling up deliverance ministries in churches with hordes and hordes of Christian people. They should be going to their prayer closet and going deeper through contemplative prayer and allowing Jesus to do trials on them to remove this stuff from them. That's how it actually get delivered. Not because somebody laid hands on you. Sometimes we do. Some things we do because it becomes public. And all the time. And I think far too many people put their weight on deliverance ministry rather than healing one, their own behavioral issue, or two, leaning into God, allowing him to deliver them. Right? So... Okay, here we go. Unfortunately, I've found that most people, including many Christians, just want to be delivered from their pain and not receive the true salvation Jesus gave them. Standing in authority means resisting the devil in areas Jesus just cleaned out, right? Sometimes you got to fight him after they leave. I mean, you're not coming back, right? You're not coming back to me. You have to throw a few punches. You've got to stand your authority. If you just want to be delivered from your pain, I see a lot of Christians are like that because they're caught in self-pity. Why isn't Jesus helping me, you know? I'm angry at him now. If you fall into something like that, you're stuck in self-pity. That's a bad place to be, and you need to have some conversations with Jesus to get out of it and let him take you through trials to expose where these issues are. It sounds harsh, but you know, it's it's how you walk in strength. You can't blame others or blame Jesus for your problems. You have to have him walk you out of them 100%. Okay, there are also doctrinal issues within the church on spiritual authority. There is the unbiblical fear of contracting the spirit by laying on of hands during prayer ministry. Oh, how many times do I get this? That's funny. So, yeah, so I remember I was teaching, I heard so many funny stories. I taught cleansing streams for years, right? I thought you couldn't lay hands on somebody while they're being delivered because a demon will jump into you, right? <laughs> I get that a lot. And then 10 minutes later, I'm talking about, well, Christians can have demons. And they go, how can a Christian have a demon with the Holy Spirit's in them? Well, hey, you're the person who just told me 10 minutes ago that a demon can jump on you if you lay hands on them. So pick one, right? <laughs> Don't throw this paradox at me. I'm saying neither. Um, so what we have here, other Christians who have never cast out a spirit tell me how they think they're warring in the second heaven, which is extremely dangerous and, again, unbiblical. The heavens belongs to Jesus, and we are to stay out. Never go looking for a fight with a demon. You will get what you ask for. Right? 
Picking a fight with a demon to sharpen your iron is a lot like going to a mafia spaghetti restaurant and opening fire on the mafia. You may have got most of them, but they're gonna come out and come after you and shoot back and cause worse damage, right? That's what the mentality is. If you never cast out a spirit, don't go worrying in second heaven. Um, oh God, 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 God. Yeah, that's another charismatic thing, right? Warring in second heaven, sharpen your iron. Don't do that. You know the tone of voice? Don't do that. Roll up a newspaper and swatch in your nose with it. Yeah, we don't warn a second heaven. And if you never cast out a demonic spirit, don't go looking for it. When you're ready and the time is right, the Holy Spirit will reveal one and let you cast it out. That's how it works. To learn to walk in authority, you need to be a person of faith. God the Father is not going to reveal something to you that you're not ready to handle. When you have solidified your relationship and your soul is in union with the indwelling Jesus, where do I talk about this? Tales of Glory, the interior castle. You'll start seeing the supernatural revealed. I'm not talking about over-the-top experiences and visions. I'm talking about sublime interior encounters with the indwelling Jesus. Jesus releases these graces at his discretion. I posted something funny. Um, oh, gosh. You know, on a, a wonderful uh, social media platform called Facebook, I, I posted an old picture of me where I, I remember I, if you guys have listened to me a while, you know, I, when I went to early on to Deliverance Ministries, I prepared like a lawyer, had my, my little briefcase full of books and stuff. And I posted something. I showed a picture of that, of how many books I used to bring and how my Bible looked like with all dog-eared with all little laws and stuff and scriptures for casting out demons. And then I said, well, I'm, I'm above this one now because I don't even take my Bible with me to some of these deliverance ministries sessions anymore. And some of these religious got blown out of shape. How dare you leave the Bible behind and all this stuff, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it's, I get where they're coming from, but they didn't catch what I was saying. I'm saying it here. When you have a solidified relationship and your soul is in union with the indwelling Jesus, you will start seeing the supernatural revealed. In order for me to get in a place of union, you don't earn it. It's by building a relationship with Jesus. I went through a lot of scriptures. I went through a lot of praying. I spent a lot of prayer time. I went through a lot of trials that destroyed me and you know, died to myself and built me back up. And through doing those and have understandings of scriptures and stuff, when you're in union with Jesus, you don't have to be battle ready every five seconds. You already are. You're already armed. Because if I'm called, you know, maybe... You know, in and out burger, having our Chick-fil-A, having a Chick-fil-A spicy chicken sandwich. You get a call, Mike, you come into our house, something weird's happening, stuff's flying around. Okay, I'll be right there. You know, I could could be like a Wednesday afternoon, I need to have a Bible with me. I'll show up and I walk into that that room where you feel the the oppression of the manifestations. I command it to go. And I didn't have to pull out my Bible. I may have to look up scriptures. Uh, you know, I look up scriptures on my phone. And I know people got bent out of shape when I mentioned this before but it's who you are before you got to the battle. I'm Minuteman ready to go to battle because I spend the rest of my time with Jesus. I'm doing my research. I'm looking at scriptures. I'm looking for his truth, spending time with him, talking to him. I'm going through my own trials and issues. I'm trying to work out with him. But if he calls me into something and he called me, he placed me there because of my union with God, I'm ready to kick butt and take names, man. I'm telling you, that's the way it works. So, never pay attention to what other people are experiencing. You are in your own unique and special relationship with Jesus. Follow the will of the Father in these matters and allow him to shape you. Patience, humility, and submitting to the will of the Father 
are signs of a mature spiritual soul. I believe what I stated here is reflected in Luke 10, 17, when the 70 disciples went out and healed the sick and cast out demons, through their faith, they were released into signs and wonders, right? They worked, they worked on, it's not through works, but they were working on themselves. That's what happened. So the Holy Spirit reveals your authority. This is what I'm talking about here. You're never gonna know when the Holy Spirit thinks you're ready or he'll maybe take you out. Remember when David took on Goliath, first he took on the bear and the lion? Well, Jesus, the Holy Spirit's gonna have you take on the squirrel, right? The raccoon, the bigger kitty, the lion, the bear, and he's gonna have to go after Goliath. And then after that, maybe bigger stuff. But you have to be in tune with what's right in front of you, what Holy Spirit's trying to show you and train you with. That's how it works. Years ago, 2007, when I got thrust into this stuff, I never thought I'd be working in ministry with counseling, helping people who are um, have PTSD from the occult and their attacks, um, survivors of the occult, doing exorcisms, right, as a counselor, or and I'm basically doing marriage counseling and basic kid counseling, right, stuff, all the above. I didn't imagine I, this is where this would go. I didn't know. But Jesus set the whole thing up and orchestrated it. And I was led by the Holy Spirit. This is not what my vision was. I thought I'd be hanging out with some Roman Catholic exorcist and be call, on call and like, go do some haunted houses. I don't even have to do the haunted house anymore. The hauntings come to me in my office, right? And <laughs> we kick it out there. So, and the whole time, there was nobody here to train me. I did some training, like with John Paul Jackson in the, his prophetic ministry, which is awesome, and his dream interpretation ministry. And I, God sent me people who trained me. They were far from perfect. They were broken individuals. But God showed me it was the best of them, how to minister from them. And I went off and, and just, you know, it just... I didn't go looking for these people. I, I landed literally in their ministry. I don't know how it works that way, but that's the way the Holy Spirit trains you. When he's ready to promote you, he'll send you somewhere else. So don't be worried if or sad. You know, like I said, I, when I told you I had to shut down Night Strike, that killed me inside. That broke my heart. Um, but I had several consistent dreams plus prophetic people coming to me whom I didn't even know. A couple of them came out of state and told me right to my face. And I go, oh my God, I was just weeping. This was in a two-month period of time, right? And that was time for me to shut down because I knew a lot about how to battle the occult from the streets in San Francisco and move me over to a counseling, right? And my next thing was I moved to the uh, woman pastor who was an awesome counselor who knew about dissociative identity disorder, was also counseling ritual abuse survivors, and we joined forces and it took off from there. And the Holy Spirit brought us together. Usually when we do meetings or something or we talk business at lunch, we start laughing like, hey, <laughs> Tell us again how we got together because it doesn't make any sense at all, right? We always laugh at that because it was the Holy Spirit. We're under the Holy Spirit's ministry. He does this. Okay, trusting Jesus. Back to union with God. You have to trust Jesus. If you're going through a haunting, um, if you're going through something where it's a trial in life or the spirits are bothering you, you have to go through trials to learn how to trust Jesus. It is imperative. I will work with people with deliverance ministry, um, casting out spirits for up to a year or longer because they don't trust Jesus. And it's odd because my discernment is, I keep telling you, you don't have any idea how weak this thing is. It's like you keep bringing it back to me to beat up on it. And it's just clinging on to you because you don't trust Jesus. 
that's not true. I've been through this fight. I, I'm not saying that's what you've been. I'm not saying knocking your fight. I'm saying you got to trust Jesus 100%. This will leave. Right? And well, how do you do that? And he goes, it's time to start developing interior prayer life. Be in union with God. When you're in union with God, demons don't stick around long. They'll oppress you. They'll do drive-bys like gangbangers do. They're not going to stay around. You must trust Jesus. I know a lot of pastors don't trust Jesus. It is the way it is. They're like, why is this stuff happening in my life? And it's like, because Jesus is trying to move you somewhere and you're fighting him. Right? You have to trust Jesus. Faith comes easy. Trusting Jesus comes hard. And that's the hardest lesson I've learned too. Every time I get promoted, I get through put through a trust trial. Right? And that's how Jesus expands my trust to move me into the next area. Simply, that's how you sharpen your irons in second heaven by not going in the second heaven. You work on your spiritual trials that teach you how to love and trust Jesus deeper and deeper. And that's it. It's not about the stupid books you have, about the pigs in the parlor, about what conferences you went to in spiritual warfare. It's about you. It's about you, the minister. It's about your integrity. It's about, should I be watching Harry Potter? You know? <laughs> should I be watching porn? There you go. Get that stuff out of your life. Clean yourself up. And when you're cleaned up and Jesus goes, oh, you're stable enough that I can take you and do some ministry with you. We can go do stuff because I know it won't come back to you. You won't backslide. Okay. You have to trust Jesus in all matters. So that's all I have. I know this is a long one, man. This was long. Anyhow, I hope this helps. I know I probably stumbled through some of the stuff explaining some new material, which I'm going to start evolving a lot of the, the information this way as we, we come out of this. And a lot of work on um, from Genesis 6 and what happened, you know, with the spirits from the flood. It's starting to lean that way. Finally, we have information that's ancient in Scripture, and it's actually supported by Paul and by Peter and by Jesus. Jesus quoted some stuff too. Oh, my gosh. That's that's the other thing that, that gave me. Oh, okay, I guess the Enoch thing's the right way to go. So, again, it's okay to read Enoch, but I wouldn't do it if you're still struggling with some of the stuff in the Bible. Get your Bible down solid. This is the PhD level, all right? You're not going to get in trouble for not understanding the stuff of Enoch or stuff like that. I'll present it and be aware of it, but just go what your pastor chose you or what your guy's learning cleansing streams. That's fine. I'm giving you the PhD dissertations I've been reading and where that stuff leads because hermeneutics for an MDV is not the hermeneutics for a PhD in Hebrew language. So that's where we're at, guys. You guys are amazing. I love you all. And I know we're getting to some prophetic ministry in the next chapter. So that should be interesting too. A slight change in spiritual warfare stuff. Until next time, this is Reverend Mike, the missionary with the microphone, checking out. God bless you guys. Have a good one.